This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the personal care giant L'Oreal. Founded in the early 1900s by a French chemist, L'Oreal and its long list of iconic brands have been driving cosmetics innovation for over a century. To break down the business, I'm joined by Zayred Osmani, head of the long-term unconstrained team at Martin Curry. We cover the history of brand innovation, global expansion, and all of the dynamics that played a role in L'Oreal's success. I'd also mention this episode is an excellent pairing with our founders podcast, episode 217 on Estee Lauder. The two dominant players in the beauty market have fascinating beginnings and their stories clearly aren't over. Please enjoy this breakdown of L'Oreal. So Zed, it's easy to look at L'Oreal and simply think about the outputs, the beauty products and cosmetics. But what I found really interesting in researching the business is all the science that goes into their products, the inputs. And that seems to be a part of this company's DNA since day one. So maybe you can bring us back to that really neat origin story of L'Oreal and tell us a little bit about how it's evolved into that behemoth that it is today. Yes, absolutely, Matt. L'Oreal was effectively started early 20th century. Eugene Schuller was the founder. He was a young chemist with a pretty entrepreneurial spirit. He effectively found a way of focusing his talent on hair dyes at the time. And that was 1907 when he launched his first hair dyes, which he felt were going to revolutionize the beauty industry. So two years after that, 1909 is when he founded his company, which at the time was called Société Française de Teinture Inoffensive pour Cheveux, a very long-winded way of simply describing that this was a French company of inoffensive hair dyes. And that's when the business started focusing on quality products that were needed by women at the time and were focused on a high level of technological content. I am glad that you're doing the French pronunciations for us today. Maybe you can give us a sense of the market itself today and the market share that L'Oreal has. So the way L'Oreal is splitting its business, it's got four divisions, professional products, consumer products, L'Oreal Luxe, as they call it, which is the luxury brands and the active cosmetics. Altogether, they're achieving about 38 billion euros of sales across those four divisions. And they're typically number one across all of those with uh, market share in the mid-teens. And when you think about the different divisions, is there a way to translate that into the different products that they carry? You mentioned at the beginning, hair dye being the origin story here, but I believe they've got a few more lines beyond that. 
Yes, absolutely. So if you look at the consumer products, this is effectively the mass market brands. They have many brands, L'Oreal Paris being one of them. Garnier is another well-known one. Maybelline, NYX, which was acquired more recently, Essie, and Nieli, and a few other brands like that, which we can go into in more detail. And that's effectively the mass market part of the business. And we'll probably come to talk about the brand segmentation. But one of the strategy that L'Oreal is really good at is segmenting the price points very efficiently across the market and across the consumer demand. And this segmentation happens both inside each of the brands, but also they then use different brands for different price points, which permits to keep some of the brands higher premium and others more mass market and others more affordable. So that's on the consumer product side. The L'Oreal Lux is a high-end brand. So in there, you will have brands like Lancôme, Kiehl's, Giorgio Armani, Yves Saint Laurent, Biotherm, Helena Rubinstein, Urban Decay, Ralph Lauren, Casharel, Azaro, Maison Margiela, Mugler, Valentino Prada Diesel, and a few others like that. So that's a higher price points products, and there'll be a mixture of cosmetics products, but also there'll be fragrances in there. Then they've got a division called professional products, and that's where the hair products come in. So again, they've got L'Oreal Paris in there. They've got Red Ken as another one. They have Kerastas, which is probably one of the most known of the brands there. Matrix is another one. Purology and Paul Priot being a couple of traditional one. Uh, Declior actually also. And then the active cosmetics are the higher end, more technologically advanced, more innovative parts of the cosmetics products. So you've got La Roche-Posay is an important brand there, Vichy, CeraVe, SkinCeuticals, and Roger Gallet are some of the brands. That's quite a list. And I didn't appreciate just nearly how many brands they had under their portfolio. I'm curious, you mentioned a few names in there, like Ralph Lauren, which I believe to still be independent. How much of those brands are licensed agreements versus fully owned brands that sit under L'Oreal? There will be licensed agreements for those brands that are more in the luxury side of things. So you Saint Laurent being one of them, Giorgio Armani, you absolutely rightly picked on Ralph Lauren, for example. So those will be under license agreement. These licenses have actually been, for some of them, very long lasting. Brands have typically been very happy with the way L'Oreal has managed to drive scale expertise and then drive the profit pool for these brands as part of that partnership and as part of that licensing agreement. Yeah, I recently read a book about Ralph Lauren and it was quite interesting. He had this fairly prominent career up until a certain point. It hadn't really translated into dollar and cents and profitability for him until he released fragrances. And that seemed to really catapult him because of the benefits of licensing and lack of capital goes in. So certainly interesting to hear about it 40 years later when it's still the case there. I'm curious, amongst those segments, 
what is the rough split between mass market, Lux, professional products? How does that $38 billion break down between the divisions? So you've got about $4.4 billion of that $38 billion coming from professional products. So that's about 11%. $14.2 billion comes from consumer products. So that'll be roughly about 37%. You've got L'Oreal Lux, which is another $14.7 billion. So slightly over that 38 39% roughly. And then the rest will be active cosmetics, which is about 5 billion euros worth. And how has that trended over time, just in terms of those different segments? Has it been a major strategic point for them to focus on any one segment versus the others? I'm curious how they would think about that from a management perspective and a strategic perspective. Professional products has been growing at a couple of percentage per annum. So it'll have been something in the region of 3 billion euros worth of sales back in 2014, getting to about 4.4 billion through that steady growth. Consumer products in 2014 will have been 10.8 billion euros, getting to 14 billion. You're looking at probably again a steady growth in the region of 3 to 4%. Around some years will have been closer to 5%. L'Oreal Lux back in 2014 was generating 6.2 billion euros of sales and has more than doubled, 14.7 billion now. So that will have been a combination of organic growth, but also some element of acquiring brands, which is part of their strategy. And some of the brands that they've been acquiring have then moved that top line slightly higher. And then for active cosmetics, that's been Again, a combination of organic growth, but also acquisitions. And the more recent acquisitions have been CeraVe, Acne-Free, and Ambi. It sounds like acquisition is a major piece of the strategy here. And I'm just curious how the company thinks about that. There's this idea of build it or buy it. And it seems like buying different brands is key to the thesis here. When did that evolve or when did that develop? When did that become a key piece of the DNA? And how do they position it as a strategy for consumers and for investors as just stepping back? I would think about most of the products that are being introduced or being acquired are probably things that can be done in-house. So what's the value proposition that really comes along with the acquisition of these brands? Some of it is to ensure their competitive advantages stay strong and their barriers to entry stay elevated. So whenever they can see that brand is starting to look appealing to consumers and might start being at risk of becoming an issue or a serious competitor to them, they will move in and acquire it. And you can mention many brands like that in the consumer products. One, for example, NYX, which was one of the brands in the US, which the company was keen to acquire. And these are brands that have had very good consumer appeal. And L'Oreal, one of its strengths is to identify some of its competing brands before they become too serious a competitor that it becomes an issue for them in terms of potential loss of market share. So there's an element of defensiveness in the acquisitive strategy. But at the same time, there's an element of focusing on continuing to fuel the growth because one of the view of the companies 
there are some brands there that might be well-placed to initially grow, but might start getting challenged once it's a case of growing to scale and becoming multinational and addressing all markets throughout the world. The previous CEO of L'Oreal used to highlight that barriers to entry in the industry might not be that elevated, but barrier to scale is very high. And by that, he probably meant that a brand can surface in a local market, but to move it from that local market to a a multinational approach to recognition throughout the globe is much more challenging. And L'Oreal has that expertise. And that expertise is a combination of being good at marketing, notably advertising, but also being good at reaching all the different consumers and the different channel points through which the consumers access those products. And then being also good at fueling what is a competitive advantage through R&D, through research and development and the technological advances that they're able to make across cosmetics, products in particular, to be able to then keep that competitive advantage, but also to be able to distribute that R&D know-how across all the brands in different packages, in different formats, and in different messages. That point on barriers to scale is quite interesting. When you look at their competitors, I think of L'Oreal, obviously here with a 100-plus year history, Estee Lauder with a storied history. I assume them to be one of the major competitors. Who else falls into that competitor set? And are there any new entrants or businesses that have been built over the past 20 years that have scaled and been able to compete with the L'Oreal's and the Estee Lauder's of the world? Or is this true to what management is saying? The challenges are there to really scale. Estee Lauder is definitely their main competitor and typically also trading horses in terms of number one, number two position, depending on the brands that we're looking at and depending on the specific local markets in which both companies operate. But when you look at the overall market, Unilever is there as probably a number two in general. Estee Lauder we've mentioned, PNG, the Japanese Sishido, and then you've got smaller companies across Europe in particular, like Barsdorf, you've got Coty in the US, JNG are some of the second rank competitors effectively. But L'Oreal, as we mentioned previously, typically ranks number one or a very close number two across all of the markets. Quite interesting. And I think hammers on that point with some of the names that you mentioned. It is an industry dominated by large players. I want to talk a little bit about the revenue strategy really how sales are made. And I think marketing ties into this a little bit. It's always an interesting experience when you walk through any type of cosmetic store where you are seeing a sampling of the products right in front of you. It acts as a bit of a marketing campaign in and of itself. Obviously, L'Oreal is well known for their marketing campaigns. Can you talk a little bit about the sales themselves, the sales strategy, and what that looks like at the point of sale where consumers are buying these products And if there's anything particularly interesting about that experience that has developed over time. In terms of the points of sales, so it'll be a combination of travel retail for some of the brands, and that will be an important channel. 
consumers tend to buy more of these products when they're going through travel retail stores. For the specialized segment of professional products, it will be hair salons, and they're very well plugged into good uh, network, a large network of hair salons across the various key markets. And actually, they're almost operating as partnerships with some of these hair salons, helping them train some of their staff, helping them to stay at the forefront of some of the developments within the hair salon space, and then being able to channel those professional products through those channels. There's the retail channels and department stores, which is another one. And then there's a specialized perfumeries for some of the brands that we mentioned that are more focused on fragrances. And then finally, there's the e-commerce side of the channels to reach consumers. And your question was asking about some of the more recent developments. That has been an important development over the past 10 years, but more importantly, over the past five years. And what's phenomenal with L'Oreal and the management of L'Oreal has been how forward-thinking they have been about their online strategy and their e-commerce strategy. So when you look at a market like China, over 50% of revenues generated in China are now online through e-commerce. So that just highlights the speed with which a market like the Chinese market has evolved. At the group level, we estimate that the e-com proportion of revenues is now almost 30% of sales. So again, an important new channel, which is potentially very exciting for this segment, this market, and therefore for L'Oreal itself. Because when you think about the products that they sell, whether it's cosmetics, whether it's fragrances, or whether it's makeup, these are pretty predictable and repeatable purchases. And often consumers get tied to a certain brand because they know the products work for them, they know their skins react well to that, or they know the type of mascara and makeup that they might want, and it works for them. And they don't have necessarily any need to change. And so if you are able to have strong brands that consumers recognize and identify with, these brands have a strong presence in the online space. You can then stimulate these consumers to just repeat purchases on that platform, which again, becomes more profitable for a company like L'Oreal because you access the consumer directly. When I think about most brands and their experience in terms of shifting to e-commerce or some type of omni-channel solution, the challenge is usually on the physical side of things rather on the digital side of things. It's easy to make the sale. It's harder to execute on the actual shipping, storage, and everything that goes into that. Oftentimes, it's at a massive cost disadvantage to what they were doing previously. What does that look like for L'Oreal? Are there any unique dynamics about how they manage that inventory system, that distribution, and the logistical network that's required to sell 50% of their products in China via e-commerce? Yeah, your question is well put, Matt, because when you think about the challenges for various businesses on e-commerce, some of it is about consumers not being satisfied with the products and therefore returning them. And actually, returns are quite costly for companies that operate in the e-commerce space. 
In this instance, because products are very homogenous when you know what they are and when you know what you want, therefore, returns are a very small incidence in consumers' purchases in the cosmetic space or the fragrance space or the makeup space. As a result, it's much more profitable for companies in this space to be addressing the e-commerce space. Equally, when you look at the size of products versus the value of these products, that it lends itself very well to e-commerce. You're sending small bottles of creams that have very high value, but the actual packaging element and therefore the cost of sending those products over e-commerce is lower than you would have with a much more bulky products in, let's say, the apparel space. I'm always astonished that e-commerce returns are 30% of overall business that's done. So to see a product like this, which is naturally going to have less returns, certainly has a major impact on the financial profile of something like e-commerce for them. It's a good opportunity to transition and talk a little bit about the financial profile of the business. From an investor standpoint, how do you look at this business from profitability? What metrics do you use? What's the margin profile look like for this business, understanding that they have multiple different channels and segments that they sell through? Yes, from that point of view, we are looking at margins that are fairly homogenous across different divisions. But at the group level, you're looking at an EBITDA margin that is currently around 24.5%. We forecast that to be growing at about 30 basis points per annum. If you look at the EBIT margin, it's almost at the 20% level. And again, the same algorithm, about 30 basis points increase in margins is what the company is targeting, what most estimates are focusing on. And really what that highlights here is that as the company grows its top line, and we're looking at a top line growth, which market up we would expect grows at about 5% per annum. Um, L'Oreal consistently gaining share means that they can achieve 6 to 7% organic growth that will make a bit of acquisition along the way so you can have high single-digit growth to the top line in some years. Um, it creates an element of scale, which they then invest into both the marketing side, advertising, and promotion, but mostly advertising. And then R&D is an important part, which I'm sure you'll be coming back to later on. But that all combined helps create that element of awareness by the consumer, that element of being able to protect their brands, being able to keep them current and visible to consumers, as well as through the R&D spend, being able to keep offering to consumers newer products that would be better, faster, effectively. So better in terms of what they deliver to the consumers, faster if it's a case of improving your skin health or any such unique selling points that those products have. The margin element, therefore, of 30 basis points is an element of choice by the company to not want to grow its profitability faster than that because it wants to reinvest into growing the top line and into making its brand stronger and better established for the long term. You mentioned about a 20% EBIT margin, some 20% operating margin. 
that 80 cents of cost per each dollar. Can you tell us a little bit about the split there? And I'm mostly curious about how much is going into advertising. I assume there's a large cost associated with production of the units and all of the products. How much is being spent just on advertising? Is that a number that they typically manage to as a percentage of revenue? Yes. So we've got advertising as a percentage of sales, advertising and promotions in the region of 32% is what we estimate for this year. And we effectively assume that that will be more or less what they'll be spending on an ongoing basis. So we've got it 32.1% this year going to 32.4 within the next four years. Incredibly interesting. And I don't have that data for other industries, but to me, it jumps out as being much higher for obvious reasons. And when you include promotions in there, there's other things that get mixed in. But I always think about that 5 to 15% as a percentage of revenue that is typically spent on advertising. But here, it proves the point of how important this is for consumer products like this. And how do they think about that strategy and what they're doing, the different platforms they're using? Is there anything unique there? Because clearly, it's a lot of money that they're spending. And I'm just curious if they've done anything particularly thoughtful around their advertising campaigns that they've seen work quite successfully. Yes, you're absolutely right, Matt. It's a significant amount that they're spending on advertising. We've just talked about the numbers. And that, again, highlights the strengths of the brand in terms of understanding that to win in this industry, you have to have the R&D, but you have to also then tell your consumers how good your products are. And you have to keep telling them that your brands are at the forefront of what the consumers want. And that's something that we can come back to the history of Eugene Schuller. He understood that very well. Yes, he was a chemist, but he also understood the importance of spending on advertising and excelling in advertising. So we're talking here about a France in the 1930s, where he understood that the importance at the time was to have the best poster designers, because at the time advertising was done through these big posters that designers would hand draw or handcraft. And he basically focused on that to make sure that he had the best marketing campaigns of the time. He even created a radio jingle. And in 1933, even released a magazine called Votre Beauté in French, which built a readership, which actually at the time reached over 1 million women. So again, it just highlights that the company's DNA was a combination of having superior technology to deliver high quality products, but also a very savvy marketing to ensure that the consumers knew that those products were very good for them and making them therefore more desirable. And that's how that just kept getting developed. So back to your question about how they do that nowadays, they're using all the modern advertising channels. So 10 years ago, you and I possibly remember, it was all about advertising on TV in between commercials. And you'd always have a L'Oreal Pari or one of the brands being advertised. And that, again, kept them at the forefront of consumers' minds. As the ways of consuming media have evolved, the company has evolved as well. So it went more into online channels, more into specialized delivery and 
they always all along also had figureheads. So the figureheads would be movie stars or singers or any other such celebrities. And increasingly, they're now spending more on influencers, influencers who are able to then target the delivery of that marketing message to specific age groups, specific demographics, specific type of consumers, all of which really highlights that they remain very vigilant in terms of ensuring that advertising is well-channeled and that return on advertising ultimately remains very good for them. To prove your point and embarrass myself a little bit, I haven't heard the brand name Maybelline in a while, but anytime I do hear it, all I think about is maybe she's born with it, maybe it's Maybelline. So it really does prove your point of how much these jingles or effective advertising can stick in your head and carry on decades at this point. So it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, when it's that percentage of your overall budget, that percentage of your sales, I'm sure it's been something that both the management team and investors have looked into quite a bit. And it's proven to be the value add that drives sales and that maintains the lead and market share advantage that they currently have. The other piece of this that you've referenced a few times is the R&D and what they're doing in terms of development and new products outside of just acquiring other businesses. So maybe talk a little bit about that, what their strategy is there, and then maybe some similar financial terms that you can wrap around how much is going into R&D for the business. In terms of R&D, we're talking about a three percentage points of sales going towards R&D. So when you look at the monetary amount, it's over 1.1 billion euros this year, and that's going to steadily grow to over almost 1.5 billion euros that we forecast over the next four years. So it's a colossal amount of spend and spending power that they have. We believe that they have the largest R&D budget of all their competitors. And that is something that they do by choice again, because they want to make sure that they're at the forefront. If you come back to the marketing, we all know that consumers react well to products that are new and products that you can claim are better. And I mentioned earlier that can deliver results faster. If it's in the cosmetics product, for example, to make your skin look younger. So being able to spend more on R&D, to be able to have breakthroughs that permit you to deliver better products that work faster for the consumer is an important aspect. That over 1.1 billion euros of spend is important. When you then look at other aspects of that, they have over 4,000 researchers across the world. They have 20 research centers that are across six key regions, the US, Brazil, South Africa, India, China, Japan, but also Europe. Those are also helping them deliver products that are more in tune with the local demand, whether it's in the Asian market or the European market or the American market, for example. And then when you look at the number of patents that they register, in 2021, they had 517 patents registered across their different products, whether it's in active cosmetics, whether it's in sun products, or whether it's in general cosmetic products. So that just shows you the scale that they're able to channel into the R&D, which again helps 
to make that barrier to scale that we talked about earlier that the previous CEO, Jean-Paul Lagon, was always mentioning very much an important competitive advantage for them. It sounds like most of that R&D is to do things faster or better, as you mentioned, something that will cleanse your face or clear up skin or potentially last longer in your hair than what was previously out. Have there been any major advancements or new developments? I'm just genuinely curious if there's been any major breakthroughs on the development side of things over the past 20 years or so in this particular space. There have been many breakthroughs and at times they've possibly been overly amplified. But ultimately, when you look at just the cosmetic space, the products to slow down the aging process, they've been consistently better at doing so through different type of technologies and different type of active components within the cosmetic creams. And the same holds from sun creams. Again, many breakthroughs and the most recent ones they're actually emphasizing quite heavily and already channeling it through uh, La Roche-Posay, which is an important brand for them in that segment. And you can really mention each of them one by one and same in the hair coloring space, same in the shampoo space. So there's been a lot of good progress made in terms of channeling the right active chemicals that can help either your hair feels better, smoother, or resist better the air dryers, or whether it's in the cosmetic space to smooth your skin, to make it healthier looking. And we can just keep going like that. Yeah, it sounds like I have some research to do myself after the episode here. You've referenced a few times the global nature, several different regions that you're referring to here. It's fairly clear that they do have a global presence and sell in different markets. Can you give us just a sense of how global they truly are, how much global diversification is, and how they think about different regions? Are there different strategies in each of these regions? I think you referenced in China, just purely from an e-commerce perspective, that differentiates it from other markets. But I'm curious on the product level as well, how much differentiation there is between different markets. If we look at the geographic spread, you're looking at developed markets being 53% of revenues and emerging markets being 47%. And that's what one of the things we like about L'Oreal, that balance across both developed markets and emerging markets. In developed markets, the US is the largest market at 20%. You then have Western Europe, which is 20% as well. And then after that, you've got the UK at 5%, you've got Canada at 3%, and Australia at 3% of sales. These are all the key markets in developed markets. They are clearly present. And then in emerging markets, China is about 20% of sales. The second bigger region will then be Asia, ex-Japan, ex-China at about 10%. You then have Eastern Europe at three and a half percent of sales, Brazil and Latin America, ex-Brazil, three percent each. And then they've got Africa at about one percent, Middle East one percent, Turkey at about one percent. Again, very well spread across both emerging markets and developed markets. The second part of your question we really like because what this highlights is both the product cycle of the company, but also the potential life cycle 
of the consumer. So in emerging markets, it will be consumers that are aspirational or some of the price brackets. So these will be consumers that will want to consume more cosmetic creams or more fragrances or more makeup. And they might not be able to afford it right away, but they will be looking at some of the brands of L'Oreal. And the strength of L'Oreal is in this pricing structure that they have, which we talked in passing earlier in the podcast, which is the ability to have different brands at different price points so that it doesn't damage any of the brands because some brands will be seen as more mass market, more entry-level prices, and others will be seen more luxury. But they'll be able to then transition the consumer as it moves from that early entry into some of the price points through their aspirational ambitions as they want to consume some of the better products or products where the brands have got better perception in their eyes, that they're higher quality and therefore warrant a higher price. So they'll be able to take them on that journey as they become more well-off and as aspirational consumption is able to be turned into reality. And that just keeps going through that life cycle. That's, again, an important aspect. You're having a company with multiple brands, big R&D budget that they can channel through these multiple brands, decline the products in front of the consumer at different price points with very efficient pricing architecture that permits them to monetize on what is an important element of investment for them to keep a competitive advantage going. The other aspect to mention, Matt, is the various ethnicities that their products tackle. And that's partly why they've got these many R&D centers across different geographies to be able to then deliver products that are specific to some of the ethnicities that they tackle on the consumer side. So your question was about, do they deliver different type of products? Yes, they do. And the science also tells them that they need to design products in different manner for the different ethnicities. Again, that's another important strength of the company because they're well aware of that science and how that science can be, again, delivering the right products to the right customers. It certainly brings home the point about the barriers to entry. And I think barriers to scale, if we just even step back and said barriers to leaving one particular region and entering another, all those points you just mentioned there seem like they would come into play and really solidify that point. And I think that pricing strategy, it's something that's reoccurring in many different industries that we see. And it seems to have a lot of success with these brands that have a history over time. It's the start with the Chevy, evolve to the Cadillac, a different style here, but move up into that luxury item, that more idealistic and something that you work hard towards. And it makes sense with all of the brands, the different umbrella and everything that sits under L'Oreal that they would use that strategy as well. In terms of the growth opportunities and how you see the business growing in the future, I think acquisitions sound like they'll always be a piece of the strategy. It does sound like they have a strong global footprint. So just expanding internationally, which is often something that many companies try to check off the box at some point, L'Oreal has done that. They're fairly well represented across the globe. So what do you think about as the major growth opportunities for this business? And are there major growth opportunities? It may just be a steady growth rate. So that is a perfectly fine answer if that's the case. The growth strategy will continue to be to deliver in the existing markets that they are 
the products that consumers want and consumer need, continuing to premiumize the consumers, so continuing to channel them towards the higher price points as they become better off. So if you look thematically, the emerging market middle class is an important ongoing driver of the company. The other aspect is aging population. As you have aging populations, you will have more demand for active cosmetic products as part of the focus on health and wellness, which we see as a third theme. So across these three themes of emerging market consumers, middle class emerging market consumers, aging population, and an increased focus on health and wellness, these are three themes that will be important to the industry in which L'Oreal operates and to L'Oreal as well. And that premiumization that those themes are implying will be an important factor for them. Over and above that, absolutely, we do expect them to continue to keep hold of their market share, both organically, but also through acquisitions and effectively to almost keep a watch on any nascent serious competition or nascent brand that might be of interest to them and looking at acquiring these brands before they become too problematic for them, but also acquiring those brands, as we said earlier, to help them grow to a scale that they couldn't do on their own. And how about from a profitability standpoint, you mentioned again, 20% operating margin. Has that number been fairly consistent over time? Has it grown or compressed with any recent initiatives? Where do you think that nets out at a mature state for a business like L'Oreal, which at this point, I think we can consider it to be mature, but they go through several phases, I think, where there's investments into the business and different cost structures. But curious how you think about that 20% number and where it can move over time. So when you look at back to 2017, the operating margin was at about 18%. So it's getting to almost 20%. We've got 19.7% to be precise of the forecast for this year. And then we're assuming 30 to 50 basis points of expansion in the margin on a steady basis year after year. When you look at the ROIC profile or the return on invested capital that we focus on, you're looking at a business that five years ago was generating a return on invested capital in the low 20s, around 23.3% back in 2018. We forecast that return on invested capital to be reaching almost 32% this year, and then to continue to grow into the high 30s and then to reach a level of over 40% by 2026, so four years out. So you can see again how that scale economies and efficiencies that they're able to generate, plus that steady margin increase drives returns on a steady basis. And again, it's one of the important aspects that we like in this company. It doesn't have stellar top-line growth. It's got a steady growth in a segment that we feel is highly predictable over the medium term and is able to continue to generate higher returns every year, even if they're not massive increase on a year-on-year basis. They're very steady, which then gets you to a return on invested capital of 40% plus. And in the medium term, we believe that that can continue to be the algorithm that the company delivers. Quite impressive return profile for the business. 
just to dive into that a little bit deeper, how much capital is being reinvested back into the business? How much is being paid out as a dividend? I think it's a very different mindset in Europe than in the US as it comes to dividends. So a little bit more on that would be quite helpful. So on the dividend side, they've got a dividend payout of low 40s. So we're forecasting about 43% payout this year. We're actually assuming that that will just stay at roughly that ratio, 43, 44%. So steady growth in that dividend. How do you think about acquisitions as a piece of the model? I'm always curious with businesses that have an acquisitive history, it's difficult to ever model an acquisition into your numbers, but you know it's part of the DNA. How do you think about that and any other dynamics with capital allocation, whether it be share buybacks or reinvestments in the business? We do know that they're going to make acquisitions going forward, but we do not forecast them on a steady basis because they've been happening on and off. So uh, if you look at the year 2016, when they acquired CeraVe and the assets of four-star salon services, they spent net 1.2 billion, having also been the year that they sold out of the body shop. So as we talked about, in the M&A part of the discussion, there are every so often brands that they will pick up and you just have to wait for them to announce that and you just put it into the numbers once it's announced rather than predicting it because there will be years where they won't have anything. Yeah, I've yet to find a good answer for trying to predict the acquisitions. When you think about risks to the business, I think we've really outlined what gives them the competitive strength. They have this operating track record. But what would you as an investor worry about as a threat to the business and a risk to the business? There's many risks as every business is faced. So we can answer this question in two ways. Firstly, in our systematic assessment of risks, we have various components. We look at industry risks, and there we've already talked about competition risk and the barriers to entry. The new entrant risk is something we assess, but we feel there the barriers to scale are such that a new entrant risk is somewhat low. We then look at disruption risk for the industry. And we actually look at this industry as having a very low disruption risk, partly because of the themes that we talked about, by the health and wellness and the fact that consumers do want to spend on cosmetics, on fragrances, and on makeup on a steady basis. It's a feel-good factor, but they also feel that it makes them not just look better, but also feel better. On that front, we're actually very comfortable with that element. But at the same time, when we look at disruption risk, we always assess whether there's an ability for the company to tackle any disruption through innovation. So when we look at the company risks, one of the risks we assess is innovation risk. And with innovation, we've talked about that across the R&D discussion. We feel that L'Oreal is very well placed to remain innovative and therefore to be able to tackle any of the disruption risks. Therefore, we believe that the potential to stay leaders in the industry remains very high. So that's at the high level as we look in a structural manner at the various aspects of risks that any businesses can face. These risks can also be regulatory risks or political risks from the countries in which they operate. Pretty generic, but those are worth mentioning. There's then the governance and sustainability risks that we assess on companies. 
And in this instance, in the same way as any business across any industry, L'Oreal is increasingly focusing more on sustainability, which is important for a consumer-facing business because consumers do identify more with companies that have a stronger focus on sustainability. So their ability to manage any of the environmental risks or social risks that their business is facing and ability to drive improvements in the way they package the products, the way they distribute them to reduce their carbon footprint is important and their drive towards net zero and towards being carbon neutral over the medium term. So those are important. There are risks that many businesses face, as I mentioned earlier, but there are risks that we believe L'Oreal is well positioned to actually tackle in a positive manner and to be able to therefore gain even more confidence from its consumer base. Then there's a few operational risks that are worth highlighting. One is when you look at the move towards more digital access to consumers, there's always a risk that some of the smaller brands that are very innovative in how they access the consumers through digital channels that might have a marketing message that really appeals or brand DNA that really appears, there's always a risk that suddenly that online digital channels reduce the barriers to entry so much that it becomes a threat. But we believe L'Oreal can tackle to that. There's then the emerging market middle class, which as a theme is an important driver. We talked about that. The risk can always be that there are local brands that come in and that start growing at a pace that surpasses some of these existing well-established brands, whether it's L'Oreal or any of its competitors that we've mentioned earlier. And again, that's a risk, but we feel the company's managing that risk well by having these R&D centers across geographies that can focus on that local demand and the need to adapt the products to the local needs. Then we've got the demographics that are also changing. So whether you look at China as an aging population, that can also can become a challenge, but it's also an opportunity because as you have more of your demographics that's getting into a higher age group, their spending power is actually stronger. So you can then really drive that premiumization that we talked about earlier. But those would be the type of risks that we would highlight. So risks that we feel are manageable, but that do require good quality of management that's able to navigate through those risks and able to be very focused on ensuring that they continue to remain competitive rather than rest on their laurels. Absolutely. And you brought up an interesting point that I wanted to dive into a little bit more there, really around the sustainability and ESG side of things. How much has it impacted their business? How do they rank as a business in terms of ESG quality? And I think about many businesses that have chemicals or commodities behind their products and how many pivots they've had to make, often at a major expense to them. Has that had a major impact on their business to date? And how do you think about that into the future? It got the ambition to be a leader in sustainability, actually. They have a program called L'Oreal for the Future program, which was launched in 2020, which has very ambitious sustainability goals backed by very clear targets. For example, on climate change, they have science-based targets which are aligned with the one and a half degree scenario. 
the company is committed to carbon neutrality sites by 2025. So five years sooner than the 2030 targets. That process actually began in 2005. And the way they're going to achieve that is through 100% usage of renewable energy and a 50% cut in greenhouse gases across all sites. And that includes the ones in the US, in North Asia. Those actually are already carbon neutral. Their goals are also focused on the wider environmental footprint. So things like banning raw materials linked to deforestation by 2030. Also, all bio-ingredients will be from traceable, sustainable sources. And 100% of their sites will have a positive impact on biodiversity. So those are important areas of focus and they're very important to also highlight. They also have on the social side some social engagement programs which are aiming to reach 3 million people by 2030. And already by 2021, they had reached over 900,000 people. So when we look at sustainability for any business model in any case, we look at social risks and we look at mental risks. And what we have for L'Oreal is actually a company that is scoring very highly across both the environmental side and the social side through some of its programs. And then across the companies that we hold, it's actually got one of the highest focus on sustainability. And we look at companies in terms of that sustainability, whether companies understand the materiality of the risks, but also the opportunities as they focus on sustainability, whether they manage the risks and opportunities around sustainability efficiently, whether they have a high level of ownership of that sustainability agenda, i.e. whether senior management is properly aligned with the sustainability targets, whether they have good ownership, and whether that is properly integrated into the strategy of the company in the medium to long term, but also into the remuneration and therefore the incentives that the company is putting in front of its managers to deliver on that sustainability. And then finally, when we assess sustainability focus, we also look at whether that focus is integrated into the reporting. And again, when you look at L'Oreal's approach, the reporting is also plentiful and very clear, remains ambitious, but certainly highlights a company that very much cares about that side of its business, i.e. the sustainability, the impact on climate change, the impact on the societies and on the environment. Yes, to your point, it's certainly a dynamic that the management team must navigate and many management teams must navigate. Zed, this has been an incredibly informative breakdown. We like to wrap up these episodes with lessons. Are there any things that you can point to from your experience analyzing L'Oreal that stand out as lessons? One of the important lessons as investors is when we look at the valuation of these type of businesses, because we've talked a lot about the growth algorithm, the returns on invested capital, the margins, the potential to stay leader in the space. What we have found over time is if you don't use the right valuation tools for these businesses, you are often as an investor at risk of looking at these businesses as being close to fair value. But what we find, and that's probably the lesson I would put forward, is the market 
tend to miss the compounding characteristics of this type of businesses. There's a lot of assumptions to make. An important one is that this type of company can remain leader in its space, can stay at the forefront of innovation, can fend off any disruption or any competitive threat. But if that's the case, then this business can compound over time at a very attractive rates of return on invested capital, even if the growth in itself is not exceedingly high compared to other businesses in other sectors. But that compounding characteristics is what typically investors can tend to struggle to value properly because you have to use very long-term valuation tools because of that assumption of long duration of compounding of returns over time. I love it. It's an excellent lesson. And I think one that certainly has a track record of proving itself here. Zed, thank you so much for joining us on Breakdowns. Thank you, Matt. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. Mm-hmm.